Some call me Steve, Dad, Husband or Friend. Others might call me Boss, Coach or Mentor. Today you can call me the Leadership Hacker. Thanks for listening in, I really appreciate it. My job as the Leadership Hacker is to hack into the minds, experiences, habits and learning of great leaders, C-suite executives, authors and development experts so that I can assist you developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake, I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. Well, hello and welcome. I'm incredibly excited. This is our 100th show. If you haven't had the opportunity to join us until of late, we started out in March 2020, right at the beginning of the first ever lockdown in the United Kingdom. While all our guests are as global as our audience come from all corners of the world, we have been a lockdown podcast. And I want to reach out to you personally while you're listening to this to say thank you. I really mean that from the bottom of my heart. Without you showing up every week, tuning in, downloading and listening to our podcast, there is no show. There would be no Leadership Hacker podcast, period. And I think that's an amazing sentiment to everybody that has contributed to the show, both as listeners and more importantly, as our wonderful guests. So to our guests who are listening to this, we have had the most amazing, diverse group of CEOs, C-suite executives, leadership coaches and experts and have shared over 300 hacks with us and with our audience. And we're now connected eternally through algorithms, through the internet, through our websites, and I'm incredibly proud and privileged to have been on this journey with you. So to celebrate our 100th show, we're going to dive into our top five downloaded shows. We're gonna revisit some of the stories and we're gonna revisit some of the learning that we had from our great guests. The first of our five top downloads is Dr. Oleg Konovolov, He's a global thought leader, author, business educator, consultant, and C-suite coach. Oleg is named amongst the top global thought leaders and shortlisted the Distinguished Award in Leadership by Thinkers50. He is on Global Guru's Top 30 in Leadership and has been recognized as the number one thought leader on culture by Thinkers360. Having been named as the Da Vinci of Visionary Leadership by many leading authorities of our time, Oleg is helping companies to create and execute their vision and strong purpose and corporate culture. And in our show, we got into talking about visionary leadership. Vision is not a gift, but a well-structured algorithm can be taught. We talked about how to create and execute a strong and compelling vision and leadership being a system of growing. And you join the conversation as we talk about why knowledge is the most important part of every leader's kit bag. Knowledge is the sexiest thing in the world. Knowledge is the most demanded product in the world. Knowledge is what shifts us into the future. Knowledge is always in demand and is always respectful and always well paid. But it's most rewarding thing when you see people succeeding because of you helping them. This is far beyond our instant necessities like food and shelter because it's impact on the next generations. It's everything. You see, when we talk the digital 
era being now, we should assume that it is a knowledge era triggered by people who changed the things in management that allowed to change technologies and so allowed to make this digital era coming. So it is knowledge. And I guess knowledge was what led you to put pen to paper and your first best-selling book was The Corporate Superpower. And that was around, you know, taking some theory, if you like, but giving it some structure. And I haven't read it myself. It's around that whole theory of how do we give structure to culture? Tell us a little bit about that. It started from very, very curious point. We all will love talking about positive culture and how culture is important. Then I looked at, hold on, why we're not talking about negative culture? Because the majority of companies these days, they still have negative culture. And what I have found is there are about 450,000 articles you could find only from academia on positive culture and only about 72 articles on negative culture where the reality is completely opposite. And I start, hold on, what is the algorithm? Because whatever we're reading in the books or listening at the conferences, it's all this all discussion is wrapped around how to good to have a good culture, but how to have a clear, simple and effective algorithm was still remaining as a gap. And so I decided to cover this gap and created corporate uh, superpower as an algorithm, as a response for everyday needs, where every leader, every manager could open it and see how to create culture, what stands on it, you know, how to do, create values or define values, what are properties of engagement, everything. So to find... Call, therefore, I call it, at the end of the book, I call it the fine make a checklist because it's like winery. You're taking care of it, you're growing, you're cultivating it, and then you're getting a great result. And therefore, it was important to give people really practical solutions instead of general chit-chat. And that's a good point of being an efficient industry. You must come with a result. Right. Because you can't sell the fish that you don't have. People need exact instruction. Simple. Because we don't have much time for philosophical conversations about something being good or not. You've either caught fish or you haven't caught fish, right? Absolutely. I love catching big fish. And so big results. <laughs> but lying behind that, I guess, would still be all of that foundation of discipline, structure, the people you work with. That, that doesn't change, does it? No, because I would call myself lucky, blessed, whatever, because I've worked with incredible professionals. I learned and studied from incredible people from academia. You know, I'm really grateful because it's a matter who teaches you and not just a personality, not just a professional, but a whole person from whom you really learn how to be a whole person yourself. And that's incredible. For instance, if we look at a simple point which we often neglect, an outlook is one thing, but how you could connect dots which seems like very non-relevant is a mastery itself 
So you must know how to make those nice pictures, really vivid pictures that could give you the right answers or most effective answers. I always enjoy talking to Oleg and what we learned from this episode was knowledge impacts on everything and everyone. It informs our next generation. It isn't the digital world that is changing. It's the people's knowledge that is changing the digital world. And I particularly like the way he reframed the whole notion of being taught. And people who teach us doesn't have to be in academia. It doesn't have to be a college professor. But anybody who teaches us should be teaching us to be the whole person ourselves. Thanks, Oleg. Next up, we're going to introduce you to Michelle Box. Michelle is a CEO of Boxbury Marketing and started out on her entrepreneurial career when she was just 15 years old. Starting out in politics, helping folks fix campaigns and was a real campaign manager for many years. She then had a stint as a successful real estate agent and after achieving great successes realised that using her public relations knowledge in campaigning she could turn her hand to marketing. And she's now a small business advocate helping teach small businesses and owners to really thrive. You join us at the part of the show where I asked Michelle to just describe how her early life in politics and real estate sales has helped her grow her business today and some of the core capabilities. You know, I learned a lot about, through policy and politics, I learned a lot about communications, of course, um, but I also learned a lot about leadership. You know, speaking at that that one event of the video you found, which it's so funny that you found it. I've tried to take it down so many times, but I've lost <laughs> access to the account. Um, and uh, I found that through that, I ended up launching a website um, a few months later that was really a policy website um, geared at covering legislation here in the States. And I recruited a whole bunch of my fellow high school friends to help me with it. And so we would literally read legislation. We would post content every day. And so the website got 10,000 page views monthly, uh, just organically from us posting this information. And so that was really my introduction into marketing, into uh, leading a team and everything that I do now as a CEO. And it's a super experience. And of course, people get often confused with leadership has something to do with a job title or a career or a salary. But actually, what you've demonstrated is leadership is about just behaviors. And we can have leadership skills and behaviors at any age, right? It's so true. A lot of it is really just jumping in and saying, OK, you know what, I'm, I'm going to do my best here and I'm going to, to figure it out. I mean, so many of us in life do figure things out as, as we go along. And so it's better to not wait for that moment of coronation, if you will, and instead just jump in and say, okay, I'm going to do my best here. This is the result we're looking to achieve and nurture these people in the process. So here we were talking about leadership as a behavior, not as a thing, not as a job title. And as often we find ourselves just jumping in gives us the experience to find ways of working and nurturing people on the way. We rejoined the conversation when I asked Michelle from her experience of being a young entrepreneur through politics and real estate, what her biggest learning in leadership was? I think the realization that you can't do everything alone, that you really do need support. So you need your mentors, you need your team, you need, I think that if you have a lot of internal drive, it's very natural to think, you know what, I can figure this out on my own. I can do all of this on my own. I'm independent. 
and then just really putting your ego to the side and saying, you know what, I don't have all the answers. Like you said, you know, copy and paste and um, really having the network around you to support you along your way up. Super wise words from Michelle there. No leader can be successful on their own. They need a team who can support them and help them on their way. And many of our guests have echoed that sentiment throughout the series. We thank the blonde fixer, Michelle Box, for being part of our show. Number three highest downloads of all time was for David Marquet. David's a real superstar. I met David on location in London. We talked about his humble background, being pretty much down to street in math club when he was in Pittsburgh. Then joining the US Naval Academy in 1981, where he ultimately took control of the USS Olympia, a nuclear-powered submarine as a captain in the US Navy. It was there that he started to evolve his leadership career when he was appointed to lead the USS submarine Santa Fe, which was the worst-performing submarine in the fleet. It was these foundations that gave him the story that now forms Turning the Ship Around, his global best-selling book, where Stephen R. Covey, the infamous author and guru, spent time on the Santa Fe and ended up creating the eighth habit in addition to his global successful leaders based on David's work. Since retiring from the US Navy he shared those lessons and helping leaders to think about creating more leaders and giving control to only those who need it the most. You join us in this show where we were talking around how the language of leaders has changed over time and how the labels we give people have been unhelpful and how by reframing some of that language and changing our perspectives, we can get a greater outcome from our leadership behaviors ourselves. So we have words. The industrial age organization design was this. One group of people will make decisions and one group of people will execute the decisions made by the first group of people. And we have labels because they all look like humans, but we need to know which tribe you're in. And we call them leaders and followers or thinkers and doers or management and workers. And we pay the people by salary or by hourly. And we white collar, blue collar, we wear different uniforms. But there's this whole cultural uh, industry with artifacts and rituals to, to put us in one of these two groups. And this is one of the, this is one of the things that is subtly embedded in our language and in modern organization design, which is totally unhelpful. Yeah, and you talk about this in your new book, Leadership is Language. Yeah. Uh, and you, you, you give the, the types of behaviors colors, don't you? Just tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so uh, as an author, you have to create a new term. No one <laughs> gets credit for just, there's a bunch of great ideas. Aristotle said everything, let me reiterate them. Uh, but so, so I call them red work and blue work. So the doing work is what we call red work. Red being typically the color of focus and action and blue work, the color of creativity. And the difference is in red work, I want to narrow my perspective, but in blue work, I want to broaden my perspective. So I'm using my brain in two fundamentally different ways. And industrial organizations solve the problem by not asking people to change. 
the thinkers were just new thinking and the doers just did doing. And we didn't need the thinkers to do doing and the doers to do thinking. But now the doer, we say, let the doers be the deciders. So what we're going to do is say this group of the organization at the bottom who used to just do what they're told, we're now going to pause and give them the chance to think and actually make decisions. But that requires them to use their brain in a different way. And it requires us, if we're in the leading group, to, to talk in a different way. And as leaders, it's our responsibility, isn't it? Because I guess through our language, we'll influence and either help new ideas and creativity or we'll stifle them. You can only control yourself. So when you say, oh, well, this person doesn't speak up, it's really frustrating working with them. Uh, the, the unhelpful behavior is to go give them a lecture. Oh, can I give you some feedback? I.e., can I get permission to be a jerk? You really need to speak up more. Well, how about this? How about you look inside yourself and you figure out, you know what? The way we're running the meeting, the way I'm asking the questions, if I say, if someone comes to me and says, well, I'm not sure about this decision. And I say, well, why, like, why would you say that? Again, subtle, but it sends a signal. You're wrong. Justify yourself. Not, oh. Tell me about that. I'm really interested in that. We really need to know before we go ahead and launch this product if, if you think we're off track. So what David's describing here is the outdated leadership model that we've all perhaps learned about at some point in our leadership careers, however old or young you may be, doesn't seem to work anymore. It's time to shift perspectives, fall out of love with our own voice and to listen to our teams. Let the doers be the deciders is how David described this. In order to harness the eyes, the ears, the minds of our people, our teams, the people we lead and work with, we need to foster a climate of collaboration and experimentation that encourages people to speak up. And when they notice problems that are not working well, to identify them and to get on with testing solutions. We salute you, David, and thank you for being part of our community on the podcast. Once upon a time, in a land not too far away, there is somebody reading a story to somebody else. Well, the power of story continues to be the most important way of communicating. Well, why is that? Well, it's been the way we've been communicating for millennia. People have been writing on walls and drawing pictures around campfires, around dining room tables as we've evolved, because stories make the emotional connection. I'm going to introduce you to Andrea Sampson. Andrea not only tells great stories, but is teaching the world how to tell better stories through her TED Talks coaching business, Talk Boutique. Andrea was a former strategist and consultant spending over 25 years in the marketing and advertising space. And with a natural flair for compelling stories and persuasive content, it wasn't long before Andrea sought after assisting teams and executives in developing their presentations and pitches. Having worked on a side hustle with TEDx Toronto, where she volunteered initially as a speaker coach, worked out that her technique for teaching storytelling could be really powerful. That led her to create Talk Boutique, and is now the founder and CEO. Not only is this the second downloaded episode of all time in our series, it's actually the number one for 2021. So if you've not yet unlocked the power of storytelling with Andrea, now is the time to download that episode. You join us at that part of the show where Andrea was telling us about what she'd learned from her time coaching TED Talks 
and how she devolved the story spine to help unlock great emotional connections with audiences. What I've learned in doing TED Talks and now working with very seasoned professional presenters is that it's really about building a story in five steps. And we we developed, so my company, Talk Boutique, has developed a process that we call the story spine, which really allows for a speaker to take about you know, anywhere from 30 seconds to three to four minutes at the beginning of their talk and set up the premise of a story that will hold the idea. Really interesting. The spine is so important because what it does is it forces us as humans, first of all, to think about the things that create good storytelling because it starts off with what we call um or what we it starts off with the environment so if you think of an environment um the environment is your sense of place now most of us when we're at a cocktail party or meeting up with a friend and we start telling a story what do we do we rush into we rush through the environment first of all and we rush right into the purpose of the story but if you take a moment and you step back and you say, okay, let me just, let me just set this up for you. So I was, um, I was walking in the woods the other day. Now it was a beautiful day. The sun was shining, you know, it was warm, but not hot. You could feel that the day was going to get really hot, but we weren't there yet. And the moisture in the air was activating the pine needles. So I could smell as I was walking that that musky scent of pine. And it was just a beautiful morning. And it was peaceful. Now, you're all on that walk with me, aren't you? Totally. Yeah, I'm right there. Right. Now, when you do that, what's happening is everybody is leaning in. But what's really happening? is their brain has just gone to the place when they were last in the woods or a meaningful moment when they were in the woods. That smell, the sounds of the birds, the the feeling of the sun dappled through the trees. Everybody, now, if I were to stop the story right there and ask a question around how everybody felt, the likelihood is I've got everybody at the same place in that moment, which is yeah. in, a, in a peaceful place, in a memory that is enjoyable. And from there, it's almost like I'm a mind reader now because now I'm controlling how they are feeling and what they're thinking. It's very powerful, isn't it? It's incredibly powerful. That's the power of environment. So once we have the environment, the next thing that we want to do is then say, well, who's there with you? Who are the characters? Now, you know, characters aren't just me and my friend. You can do that. But the thing is, you've robbed the audience of getting to know who you are and who your friend is. So what you want is just a little bit of a backstory. So there's me. I, You know, this was about five years ago. So I was in a, you know, maybe a, an emotional place. This was just at the breakup of my marriage. I'm making this up. And um, my friend, who was a dear friend, who was supporting me through this very emotional time, her name was Shauna. And Shauna was a lovely human. She's still a dear friend of mine. But she's one of those people who's incredibly compassionate and helps people through really difficult times. So here we were on this early morning walk going through the woods and, you know, we can hear the birds chirping and I'm at that point in the separation where we are 
you know, separating stuff. And so it's a difficult moment. And Shauna is helping me to see, you know, that I can let go of things that I thought were really important, but the reality is they weren't. Now, again, I just want to stress here, I'm fully making this up <laughs> hey, as listen, we go. You, you may be making this up, but I'm still, ironically, with you because <laughs> of the compelling use of language. Right. And so listen to that, right? The, the language I'm using, every piece of language is is using rhetoric, really, right? I'm using a combination of metaphor. I'm using um, uh, emotional words, words that have um, meanings that go deeper than just the the core idea of that word. I'm also using, um, in some cases, repetition. So I'm using metaphor all the way through it. So what we've gotten through now is the environment, the characters, and we've gotten to the issue or opportunity. That's the third part of the story spine. This is where most people jump into a story because this is the, the the real reason. I could have just started it That's off. That's true, yeah. I could have started off going, you know, the other day I was walking in the woods and Shauna was helping me figure out what I was going to give to my ex, right? That Because that is really the story, except you can see yeah. I've built it out, right? And so then what you want, the fourth part of the story spine is what we call the raising of the stakes. This is the difference between a good story and a great story because the raising of the stakes is that tension moment. It's the and then. And so, you know, as Shauna and I were talking about the things that I was going to, to keep and what I was going to let go of, we came to that blanket, you know, the one, the blanket that my family had given us, but it was also the blanket where we had our first date. And it was the blanket that had followed us all the way through our relationship. And there was a part of me that really wanted that blanket, but there was a part of me that actually didn't ever want to see that blanket again. And I was distraught in that moment. How could I let go of the blanket? Now, I think if you're following me, what you know is that blanket is really a metaphor for the relationship. Yeah, it is. But it's it's ironic because it, it still is also a physical thing yes. it's a metaphor but actually we we all can have something that we relate to in our our day jobs and our lives that are similar metaphors of physical things but carry loads of emotion with them right and so as i'm going through this story you know anyone who's listening to this you know they may or may not have lived a similar story but they have lived everybody because you know here's the thing about stories stories are all meta stories as humans we all live the same stories and so everybody has ha has walked in the woods or has watched uh, you know a movie or or um, seen a, a, an image of walking in the woods so there's some experience of it everybody has a good friend who helps them through things now you know you may not have as good a friend or maybe your friend is better but you have the experience of it the human condition is that we all go through relationships and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't and heartbreak is common and then the idea of having something that represents that these are you can see they're just it's a meta story yeah right so everybody as i'm going through this story everybody is having the same experience because they're living their own experience and my experience at the same time and that's what makes it so powerful 
So when you take the time to build it, when you take the time to use emotions through it, what you're doing is you're building a connection with anyone who's listening to that. Yeah. Now, we've gone through the four elements of the story spine. The fifth element is just the outcome. It's the way in which you tie it together. And so in this case, it could be that in that walk in the woods, you know, Shauna helped me to understand that the blanket was in fact a metaphor for my relationship. And as much as it was something that I was having a hard time letting go of, it was time for me to let go of it because I was letting go of that whole part of my life. And that blanket was in a part of my life that was no longer going to be in my life. So it was time for me to let that go. And by the end of that walk, I had not only let go of the blanket, but I had let go of the relationship. I was ready to move on. So there's the there's the story spine in action. It's a most compelling model. And if you're anything to do with telling stories or engaging audiences or helping people understand something that they don't yet understand well enough, let's think about how we could use the story spine to really bring our stories to life. Andrea, thank you for being part of our show and bringing our stories to life. When I look back over the 300 plus hacks we've had on the show, the one thing that keeps presenting itself is lead yourself first, self-leadership. It sounds so obvious when you say it in such simple terms, but before you can lead others, you must first lead yourself. If you lack self-awareness, self-regulation and self-learning, you'll fail to really truly reach your full potential and our top downloaded show of all time so far is self-leadership with andrew bryant andrew is a motivational speaker and has become the number one authority on self-leadership he's featured on tedx and wrote the book self-leadership of course you join our conversation as we explore the notion of what really is self-leadership and why that can help us or hold us back The concept of self-leadership goes back to the Roman Stoics. It goes back to the Greek philosophers. It goes back to Lao Tzu, uh, influencing, you know, others is is strength, but influencing self is is true power. So the concept in itself is not original. It's this this human reality around that, you know, we, we have some sense of personal power if we take ownership. And, and so it was very much the ownership of what can you take ownership of? And you can actually take ownership of your thinking. We all have thoughts, but do the thoughts have us or do we have the thoughts? We all have emotions, but are we having the emotions or are the emotions having us? Now, if you've ever been in a fury about something, you know that the emotions had you. If you've ever been really sad about something, you've been gripped by the emotion. You were not in control. But when we go, oh, I'm angry about this. What, why am I angry about this? What's, what's driving that anger? What's, what's that really about? Then we're in, we take that step back into the observer place and that gives us choice. And, and, you know, that's the heart of Stephen Covey's work, you know, the seven habits of highly effective people was the proactivity between idea and action, that there is a choice point that we have as human beings. And in my experience as a coach, Andrew, and I'm sure you see this a lot with your clients too, is most of my work is in the bit in the middle, the gap between the idea and the action and the evaluation of how you get people to move forward. How how has that been part of what you do right now? Just before I came on this, I I was talking to a CEO of a pharmaceutical company who wanted me to coach one of his executives. And uh, 
I'd, pre, I'd been interviewed by his head of HR you know, before I spoke to him. She was obviously playing buffer, so they didn't waste his time. And then his opening statement was, tell me about yourself, uh, because I haven't had time to read the, the, the briefing material. And I kind of wanted to do an inner groan, because that means I've got to tell my entire life story, which I'm doing again on this podcast. <laughs> Because it's a long life story and I have to edit it a bit. And I, you know, I, I just don't want to come across. It's like, why are you a different coach? And I'm like, well, how do I go about that? And, and I, I really took this point that, you know, there's, a, you know, the classic coach comes from the inner game and the outer game. And you'll be familiar with a book called The Inner Game of Tennis. Sure am, yeah. And, yeah. And, and that is that coaching is about the inner landscape. Outer coaching is how you hold the tennis racket, how you serve the ball. The inner coaching is how you think about yourself as a tennis player. And with leadership coaching is how do I think about myself as a leader? I mean, just this week, I was coaching a CEO of an organization. It's a very successful CEO. I've, I've coached him in other organizations. He's been parachuted into this company that uh, uh, joint, some venture capitalists have bought. And he's stressing himself out because he's built this runway and he's attached his ego. Uh, when I say built the runway, built the runway to you know profitability in a certain amount of time and a certain number. And he's attached his ego to that. And if it doesn't work, he's feeling like a failure. And and so the way he's created a mental schematic of that is his inner world is driving his outer communication. And he's actually you know the coaching was to help him not spread doubt against his troops, you know, amongst his troops, because he's having these doubts. But as the leader, yep. they're his doubts. They're not their doubts. And, right. and they're only doubts because he's made such a big deal out of this. Now, if, if the company burnt to the ground, he would rise from the ashes and he would lead another organization. He's a very successful, very competent, very intelligent individual. But the coaching is around that gap between his inner thinking and his, his execution, in this case, his speaking was not as aligned and motivational and inspirational as it could have been. So David's talking here about the inner game, the voice in our head, that inner coach. And we need that coach to serve us well every day. But in order for us to serve us well, we need to be mentally agile and fit. We need to be physically agile and fit. And we need to be focusing on ourselves first. And when you listen to the full show, you'll find out why self-leadership is not self-centered or selfish but essential for us as leaders. We rejoin the conversation as we're talking about ego and why ego can sometimes get in the way of us being really successful self-leaders. Somebody drives upside, outside the restaurant or the hotel in the Maserati or the Lamborghini and the Ferrari gets out, you know, after having revved the engine so that everybody's paid attention to them and then throws the keys to the valet. Do they have a big ego or a small ego? Most people listening will say big ego. But actually, from a psychological perspective, their ego is fragile because they're engaging in egocentric behaviors, right? Uh, look at me, look at me, right? So egomaniacal, egocentric behaviors are based on a need to feed an ego. When somebody has a healthy ego, a healthy sense of self, they don't need the attention. They don't need to throw their, their keys at the valet. They could turn up on a bicycle and they'd be fine because they know who they are. Right. So actually, when you do the work on yourself, you're a better human being to be in relationship with others. Right. Like so that. ego. Yeah. Ego. Actually, Carl, you talked about ego means just sense of self. Egocentricity is, is, is a fragile ego. Look at me. Look at me. I'm not OK. 
and you know, a relationship should always be a gestalt, where the, the whole is greater than the sum of the individual parts. If two broken people meet each other trying to make one complete person, they're codependent. When two people have got their stuff together, meet, they create a relationship that has things over and above themselves. So self-leadership is not selfish because when we have taken care of ourselves, we have all the energy to focus on other people. We can listen. We can help. And, and the simplest one is, is a metaphor that, that precedes me, but I, I use it as well. And that is if you're on the aeroplane and the oxygen mask does fall from the ceiling, you're supposed to put it over your nose and mouth first before assisting others. Because if you don't look after yourself, you're useless to anybody else. The biggest compliment you can do for somebody is to turn up and authentically be yourself. If you're, if you're hiding behind some mask or you're playing some game and then manipulating them into whatever bizarre reality you have, then you're really not doing anybody a favour. So it's interesting, isn't it? Ego has been seen as being quite a bad thing, but it's a healthy sense of self. It's egocentricity that is unhelpful. And recognising that egocentricity will hold us back from engaging and behaving in the true sense of self is an essential part of our leadership behaviours. Andrew was on one of our very early shows in March 2020 as we launched the podcast, but continues to get regular hits through our channels and our media, and therefore goes to show that the message of self-leadership is always going to be relevant. Andrew, I'm incredibly grateful for you taking part in our show and being part of our community and helping us lead ourselves better. Thank you. So we're coming to the end of our time together on our 100th show. It's been an incredible journey, and thank you to our five guests for reliving some of those moments from our 100 episodes over the last two years. And please remember, we have 95 other guests who bring diversity, stories from across the world, different genres of leading and leadership. So please head over, download the show, and never miss a future episode. And this is a shameless plug. If you like what we're doing, please tell others. Please share it with your business communities. Please share it with your teams at work. And let's help spread the word of leadership and leadership development so that we can all grow, we can all learn, and we can all develop. Because the irony here is there are no hacks to leadership. There are just great tools, great tips, and great ideas. But if we can shortcut them through our learning and our lessons with you, the quicker we learn, the better our teams perform, and the better our teams grow. And before I sign out, I want to make a special mention to Jermaine Pinto. He's my trusted sidekick and partner in the show. He's been a great support and a great aid as we've developed our 100 episodes together. Thank you, Jermaine. I appreciate you, man. And I'll be super grateful for you to leave us a five-star review and let us know how you think we can continually grow our Leadership Hacker community. It's the way that we grow and it's the way that our audiences get to meet our great guests. Thank you for being part of the community. Thank you for being on our journey. That's me signing out on our 100th show. I'm Steve Rush and today I have been the Leadership Hacker.